0: And thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from The Age of Antibiotic Resistance by Sean Williams and first broadcast live on the 30th of April 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support.
1: Hi everyone, uh, hopefully you can hear me. Thank you so much uh, for, for having me here to join you today, uh, even though the, the format has changed slightly from, from the original plan. Um, thanks particularly before I start to the Bristol Skeptics Group uh, who originally invited me to give this talk. I'm really pleased that I'm still able to, to speak to you in a different format. Um, so uh, yes, thanks for the introduction. Um, my name is Sean Williams. I work for the Drug Resistant Infections Programme at Welcome. If you've not heard of Welcome, uh, we're the second largest medical research charity in the world after the Gates Foundation, uh, so we do a lot of funding for medical research, give it out, out a lot of grants uh, for science. We also uh, work in health issues in many other different ways, um, particularly in terms of working on policy and advocacy, and that's particularly what, what I do on the topic of antibiotic resistance. Um, And so it's particularly interesting to be speaking to you in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, I've actually found to be coping fairly well uh, with lockdown. And I really think that's because uh, what what we're seeing in the world at the moment is not too dissimilar from some of the scenarios that that I work in with regards to antibiotic resistance. And so it's actually not that much of a surprise to me. Um, So uh, we'll we'll maybe explore that a little bit more in the talk today, uh, which is focused on the age of antibiotic resistance. Uh, so this is a huge topic to, to try and talk about in the space of forty-five minutes, but uh, just trying to focus today on a few different areas. And so, firstly, we'll be talking a bit about what antibiotic resistance is and why we should be concerned about it. Um, secondly, how we can try and mitigate antibiotic resistance. Uh, talking across two different areas broadly on on how we develop new drugs, and then also talking a bit about how we can keep uh, existing drugs working for longer, and then. Following that, we'll touch very briefly on uh, how we can make change happen, which is something quite close to my heart working in policy. And then finally, uh, a little bit of uh, an extra bonus for you today at the moment, uh, given the current climate, thinking a bit about how uh, antibiotic resistance uh, interfaces with with COVID-19. But to kick off, uh, first, uh, I think we should start with talking a bit about some of the the, the key terminology around uh, antibiotic resistance. it might seem quite simple to some people, maybe you know a lot about this already, but it can be quite a sticky issue, uh, so good to, to get it straight from the start. Um, a good place to start is uh, making sure we're all familiar with what a microbe is. So a microbe is a microscopic organism uh, with with a few different major types uh, coming within that, that category, so includes things like uh, bacteria, fungi, uh, viruses, those being sort of the main ones that, that we really think about. And so Uh, It it follows that an antimicrobial is something which acts against a microbe, has action on a microbe. And those are drugs that can treat infections caused by any microbe. And so uh, there are are subsets to antimicrobials. And one of those is uh, antibiotics, uh, which are are medicines that specifically treat infections caused by bacteria. Um, And so this is where we then come onto our our terminology of, of resistance. Uh, Technically, the broadest term for drug resistance is antimicrobial resistance, commonly abbreviated to AMR. um, And and from our definition of microbe, uh, we know that this is uh, resistance of any type of microbe to medicines designed to, to kill those microbes. And it then follows that when we talk about antibiotic resistance, we're talking specifically about bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. Um, uh, and so it, it's helpful to, to remember that, that AMR and a, ABR, antibiotic resistance, are mechanisms. Uh, but the impact that, that we care about, the, the actual thing you can catch is a drug resistant infection. You can't catch AMR. Um, and this is really the metric that we care about uh, when, when we think about public health. And so this is the terminology that, that we use at Wellcome and why we're called the, the drug resistant infections team rather than uh, the AMR team. And uh, just a a brief disclaimer at the top, you'll find that what we tend to do a lot is uh, use some of these terms interchangeably. So uh, I might uh, slip into saying AMR uh, more than I probably should. uh, But in this talk, I'll mainly be focusing on antibiotic resistance. Uh, But of course, some of the principles I'll be talking about also apply more broadly to, to antimicrobial resistance. And so uh, if we dig a bit deeper into what antibiotics, uh, antibiotic resistance actually is, just to to start things off, I've got a few statements that that I want to share to to get into this. So first, uh, infections become drug resistant when the bacteria that cause them adapt and change over time, developing the ability to resist the drugs that are designed to kill them. So uh, how exactly uh, does this happen? Um, Bacteria, of course, have a really short replication time, and so the process of their their adaptation and and evolution is effectively sped up. And you can see some quite drastic changes in in bacteria characteristics over quite short time spans. Um, And and through this uh, adaptation, resistance can develop organically as a result of genetic mutation. And if we do see this kind of genetic change, uh, then this might improve the, the fitness of the bacteria. Uh, giving it an advantage over other individuals under certain circumstances. So as per this diagram that that you can see on the slide right now, we might see lots of different bacteria at first, uh, but if we apply a pressure to them, for example, the pressure of an antibiotic, then only those who can combat this pressure survive uh, and they will then take over. All of their competition has been wiped out. They've now got some perfect conditions to to proliferate and become the dominant uh, strain in that space. And so in effect, the antibiotic is applying uh, selective pressure, which encourages those resistant traits to thrive. And so, if they're successful, uh, bacteria then have a few different ways that they can share that genetic information with other individuals. And then we see even further spread of that resistance trait, which is a thing that we really don't want. And uh, so, above all, just from this, it is really good to be clear that uh, that resistance is a biological phenomenon. It's not something that we can stop entirely. Uh, Bacteria have been doing this since before people were around, certainly before people were were using antibiotics. Um, So it's something that we can't stop, but it is something that we can try and slow down. And so this leads me nicely onto uh, my my second point about what antibiotic resistance is, uh, that the overuse of antibiotics in both humans and animals is speeding up this process. And I think we already had a question on the slide that we saw about uh, use in animals. So maybe we can uh, start to touch on that a little bit already. Um, Now, technically, any use of antibiotics can lead to resistance. Uh, As I mentioned before, the accelerating factor is the exposure of bugs to drugs. Uh, This is what gives us the selective pressure that speeds up the emergence and spread of resistance. But of course, we we want to use drugs. We actually need them in many circumstances to, to treat illness. And so this is why we talk about overuse or or misuse of drugs uh, as the thing that we can control to try and bring that risk down. And so uh, showing this slide, I think it's interesting to think about where we currently use drugs uh, and where we have different exposures of of bugs to drugs in, in different environmental settings. And this uh, is a lovely confusogram uh, showing the flow of, of where we find antibiotics and then also where uh, antimicrobial resistance also kind of travels around in different spaces. And some of these areas are, are things that we know about and we expect, and some things might be a little bit more unexpected. And so when we talk about AMR, we often split it into three domains, uh, which is what I'll, I'll cover just now. So those three domains are, are human health and animal health. And then finally, the environment. And then when we talk about those things, we often call it uh, the one health agenda, sort of the, the broadest complement of, of how we can think about and address AMR. And so when it comes to the human sector, uh, we also know that, that antibiotics are used by people uh, to treat illness, both in hospitals and, and in the community. Um, humans can act as a place where bugs are exposed to drugs so when you take an antibiotic you're exposing all of the bacteria in your body to that antibiotic um and so that's that's where we're applying our selective pressure so any use of, of antibiotics as we were saying before creates that risk and certainly overuse heightens it more than we need to and further to this humans uh, as you can see in this diagram so worth mentioning are also a vector of resistance so um you, you have uh, bacteria within you all of the time. If you're ill, you might pass on a, a resistant bacteria to someone else. Uh, but also, even if you're just carrying a resistant bacteria in in your microbiome, so for example in your gut, you might not be showing signs of illness, but you can sort of carry that around with you and pass it on to other people. As uh, as for animals, obviously antibiotics are also used to treat animal infections. Uh, so if you've, you've got a cat or a dog or other pets, um, you, you might have seen that your, your vet has prescribed them antibiotics in the past. And um, we also treat farmed livestock uh, and fish with antibiotics as well. Um, as well as treating illness, we might give animals, especially livestock antibiotics, uh, when they aren't sick to prevent illness or even to promote growth. So um, trying to, to really increase their growth to really get the most out of, say, meat production processes. And this. This practice is reducing uh, it's actually banned in some places so for example it's banned in the eu uh, due to the unnecessary sort of exposure uh, that it's creating of, of antibiotics uh, in animals to, to bacteria uh, and creating that unnecessary risk but in many places it is still common practice um, usually acting as, as sort of a sticking plaster to cover up sort of poor animal husbandry techniques um, and just the same as humans, animals can also then be a vector to resistant bacteria with also scope to um, to impact human populations through uh, contaminated food uh, and also through zoonoses. Uh, as we well know now with, with COVID-19, uh, zoonoses being infections which start in animals but then can spread into people. And so the other area that that I really wanted to mention because it's one of the the main things that I work on for uh, welcome is uh, the environment and actually it's something that people are, are often less aware of as being an issue and um, so antibiotics uh, can also end up as you can see in this diagram in in soil and water courses in a number of different ways uh, particularly through waste streams as antibiotics are only uh, partially broken down uh, when we take them ourselves um, so actually active components uh, are released in in waste like urine and faeces. Uh, You also get common practices like flushing medicines down the toilet or or throwing them away so they sit in landfill and you get leaching uh, into into waste and sewage. And uh, when you have uh, pharmaceuticals uh, in this waste, it isn't always effectively treated by wastewater treatment processes, uh, especially in countries where standards might be poorer. So bugs and drugs uh, can then both end up in water. We've again got that exposure event And this is especially concerning uh, when when these things end up in water that people swim in, as you can see, our our lovely swimmer in the diagram, or water that people use for for washing or drinking. And this tends to be more of an issue at at certain hotspots. It's not necessarily everywhere in water, um, though it is is quite widespread. Um, Hotspots like hospitals, uh, as you might imagine, hospital waste uh, is is quite high in terms of load of drugs and uh, potentially of microbes as well. Um, equally, farm waste is a bit of a hotspot. Um, there's a large volume of animal waste produced by farms, which, which might contain antibiotics if the animals have been taking them. And then this waste might be uh, spread on fields or, or leach into waterways before it's been appropriately treated. And another interesting hotspot that I want to mention is manufacturing. Uh, waste from antibiotic manufacturing currently has no standards applied in terms of um, the level of antibiotic that can be released from the manufacturing plant into, into waste flows that go into sort of surrounding watercourses, And so in, in some places, the majority of manufacturing happens in, in India and in China. Uh, and there have been studies in India showing that actually um, that the level of antibiotic in surrounding waters is higher than it would be in your blood if, if you were taking that antibiotic. So um, we're seeing quite concerning levels. Uh, But interestingly, India is uh, currently has some draft legislation trying to limit that practice. So it'll be interesting to see if if that's passed. And so why should we care about this issue? We've thought a little bit about what it is now and where it is, but but why should we care? Another statement for you, without working antibiotics, routine surgery like hip replacements, common illnesses like diarrhoea and minor injuries from accidents, even including uh, minor cuts, can become life threatening. And really what I'm saying here is that many drugs uh, like antibiotics are becoming less effective at treating illnesses. And things that have previously worked are having no effect now, which sees uh, much longer infection times. Uh, People might experience uh, much more drawn out treatment processes where they might have to try multiple therapies, uh, many of which might have some, some really horrible side effects. Um, This really leads to obviously far more suffering of the patient. Uh, People might
0: end up with chronic illnesses which uh, end up being recurring. And obviously
1: sometimes this can result in in people dying often of things that, that we think should be perfectly curable. And so obviously this includes illnesses that we do think of as severe as well, uh, just like tuberculosis uh, and outside of bacterial infections, things like HIV and malaria showing increasing resistance. But it also obviously, as I was alluding to, includes other illnesses. that The development of modern medicine means we don't now really give a second thought to, um, just like urinary tract infections, Uh, some sexually transmitted infections, even cuts and scrapes uh, that that just end up with simple skin infections. And uh, just in the slide there, these are uh, um, headlines from from different newspapers and magazines online, and it it sounds a bit uh, overblown, but I could have died from an ingrown hair, a perfectly plausible situation. And similarly, there are procedures that we think of as routine that really rely on antibiotics, and could be made a lot riskier as a result of resistance. So these include things like surgery, where antibiotics are are taken as a precaution to uh, prevent infections from bacteria that might enter at surgical sites. Um, This obviously also includes cesarean sections, but resistance can also uh, affect vaginal births, where antibiotics are commonly given and have really helped uh, improve maternal mortality rates. Um, this also includes things like chemotherapy, as antibiotics are used to, to protect patients when their immune systems are compromised by their cancer treatment. And this is really where we notice that in many ways modern medicine is grounded in our ability to, to rely on antibiotics, uh, which is really concerning when we see the cases of resistance rising. And so you might be saying, well, I don't know anyone who's this problem, how bad can it really be? Uh, and so it's true. Uh, it goes out saying now that people are already dying from drug resistant infections and as more drugs stop working more lives will be put in danger and so just to contextualize that a bit um, this is uh, a quite a common statistic that, that we use to really explain the impact now and the projected impact of resistant infections so you see from this diagram that the the blue sections here are, are representing um, deaths today from from different health issues some infections some some other things like road traffic accidents, some other illnesses. Um, uh, but you'll see that, that um, antimicrobial resistance, this is AMR in, in the broader term, in the blue square shows that we're already seeing uh, 700,000 uh, deaths per year as a result of resistant infections. That's globally, I should say, as well. Um, it's obviously not as big as, as some of the other issues that we have in this slide, but it's certainly non-trivial. And, uh, As Projections show that actually this number could massively increase. So if we don't take suitable actions now, projections show that we could be looking at 10 million global deaths per year uh, as a result of resistant infections in 2050. And just to help with the perspective there, you can see that's more deaths than we see today uh, from cancer. Um, And, you know, I think most people today uh, either know or are affected personally by cancer. So it's interesting that that could be a situation that we're in. Uh, by 2050 with resistant infections and just very briefly to say as well that the impact of amr doesn't stop at deaths Uh, analysis has also projected significant economic impact and uh, i think in the current climate we we know a little bit more than maybe we did before about how health issues really can have such drastic financial implications and so for amr uh, a reduction of 2 to 3.5 percent of gdp is is estimated by 2050. And that would cost the world up to 100 trillion US dollars. That's obviously an estimate. And AMR is also projected to force up to 24 million people into extreme poverty uh, as a result of poorer health, higher healthcare costs, all those things uh, impacting on incomes and sort of driving people into poverty and not being able to escape. And so you still may may think that this might not affect you. uh, you know but it's not just about lower income countries it's not just about places with weak healthcare systems drug resistant infections can affect anyone uh, we're all at risk of infections uh, from drug resistant bacteria and just to to sort of solidify this a bit more here's a figure illustrating numbers of affected uh, people in different regions of the world today so uh, while well, you can see that there is some disparity between cases in different regions we still have cases in the hundreds of thousands in Europe. But the same for North America, um, and and just examples from the UK that you see in the media. We read a lot about, you know, the, the MRSA crises. Uh, UK had the world's worst case of supergonorrhea in 2018. Uh, this is this is not something that we are sheltered from. Uh, and as you can see uh, from the current pandemic, of course, a lot rides on how well your government responds. Uh, and actually at the moment, some of the worst hit places are not, not necessarily those that we might have expected. Would you have expected the UK, for example, to, to be up there with the highest death toll at the moment? Possibly not. And, and finally, just to, to really think about this a bit more, it's also really important to remember that, that bacteria don't care about borders. Um, you might remember from my uh, confusogram a few slides earlier that we had an aeroplane in that image. And actually the rise in global travel means that people are picking up Resistant bugs and spreading them around the world and taking them with them on their travels. And so really, this, this is a global issue. Um, no one country can protect themselves alone. It's something that we have to address altogether or all of us still remain at risk to some degree. But importantly, uh, that's probably been quite, quite a downer of an intro to a talk. Uh, so let's try and <laughs> keep things a bit more positive. We can solve this problem. And by taking action now to develop new drugs and to make sure the drugs we already have stay effective, we can protect ourselves, our families and our communities. So that obviously sounds fantastic. Um, So next, I'd like to talk a bit more about some of those solutions and, and split it into those two categories that you have in the statement there. So first, talking a bit about how we develop new drugs and second, talking a bit about how we can keep drugs working for longer. So. So first then, how do we develop new antibiotics? Uh, This process follows a few distinct stages across what we call the antibiotic pipeline, which is illustrated in this figure here from left to right. This starts with uh, discovery research. So this involves uh, basic research to to identify uh, potential antibiotic candidates. We might find these from looking uh, at organisms that produce antibiotic substances. We might be looking in nature, and um, we find these things in a few different places. And sometimes you read in the news about um, some really strange places where they find these candidates. Uh, for example, one I, I remembered when I was researching this talk was uh, finding things in Komodo dragon blood. Or I think there's also been examples of, of finding antibiotic uh, resistant compounds in the human nose and, and things like that. And so our next phase that we move into is is preclinical research. So uh, thousands of promising candidates are tested from from our discovery phase to see if they might work as medicines in this stage. So uh, obviously, while it's easy to find substances that kill bacteria, uh, it's much more difficult to discover and develop substances that are are not also toxic to humans. So this is where we're starting to think about what might work as a, a medicine candidate. And then we move into our clinical trials. So in the the slide here, these are split into phase one, phase two and phase three. Uh, These particular phases all involve uh, very specific sort of requirements in terms of what needs to be investigated. Um, And and this is always the same across the process. But this is this is our clinical trial space. And here, promising candidates from from the preclinical section, move in and are tested to see if they're safe and effective in people. So this is, this is where we'll start to use our, our human testing. Um, clinical trials are certainly very complex. They require quite a lot of resource, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of expertise uh, that, that can really only be provided by large pharmaceutical companies. So this tends to be where most of the, the clinical trial work happens. And then finally, uh, if you're, you're getting your candidate through this whole process, you'll finally end up at registration. So if a new drug proves safe and effective uh, in human tests, it needs to be registered uh, with a government drugs regulator before it can legally be prescribed uh, in a country. And now see this is a bureaucratic process, it can be slow, uh, it can be full of regulatory hurdles, uh, but once you get through that, you're in your delivery phase and this is where you can finally market and sell your product. Um, Obviously that's, that's the process that you go through if you're successful, but actually there, there's quite a lot of problems with this, this pipeline that make it really hard to develop antibiotics. Um, firstly, uh, our probability of success is really low. Uh, that orange bar at the bottom is, is showing you the, the sort of average probability of success at each stage of the pipeline. As you can see from the dots that move across from the left to the right, uh, the number of candidates we start with is very high But actually, these these drop out at every phase and we might be lucky to end up with one one candidate at the end. And a very aptly named valley of death spans between the the discovery and and preclinical phases, which sort of suggests how difficult things are to to especially get through that stage. Um, another reason why it's really hard to develop antibiotics is that the process takes a really long time. So that that mid blue line in the middle there gives you a flavour of just how many years it, it takes to get through each of those stages. And then finally, the other reason why it's quite a tough thing to develop a new antibiotic is just because it's exceptionally expensive. The dark blue line at the bottom there um, is giving you an idea of how many millions of dollars each each stage costs. And so all in all, it, it can take on average uh, between 10 to 15 years and over a billion dollars to develop a new antibiotic. So it, it's quite a serious process. And then compounding all of this compared to, to other treatments, actually antibiotics tend to be quite low in price they're really cheap uh, when, when they get to the market uh, and at the same time new antibiotics are seen as drugs of last resort against uh, resistant bacteria um, if anything we don't want to use them because you know we want to keep them in reserve for when we really need them we want to reduce that exposure to them as much as we can and so actually we want to use them sparingly when they get to the market we, we don't want to sell them in large volumes And obviously sparing use is is great for resistance. It's what we want. But actually, given the huge costs involved in that pipeline, uh, it doesn't really make for an attractive model for pharmaceutical companies. Um, uh, Analysis suggests that it takes on average about 23 years to to potentially make your money back, uh, which really doesn't sound like a a, a good business proposition to me. Um, and, And so to all intents and purposes, really what this means is the antibiotic market is broken. Um, it's, it's really not delivering what we need to, you know, as a market to, to bring something which which gives us a lot of public good into into use from development. And, and as a result of this, the landscape um, in, in the development space has really changed over over the years. Um, with the with the limited financial incentives, many large pharmaceutical companies have started to pull out of the field. Uh, so in the 1980s, there were 18 multinational companies committed to antibiotic research, but today they're, they're just a handful. Um, antibiotic R&D is now primarily driven by small biotechnology companies. Uh, and so it's reassuring in recent years that, that some of them have made some really, some really great breakthroughs and put new drugs onto the market. Um, but actually bringing new drug onto the market still doesn't guarantee you success. So in the last, uh, last year even, we've seen the bankruptcy of a couple of biotechnology companies Despite them having uh, antibiotics recently put onto the market, and so uh, where has this put us? Uh, this has got us to a point now where no new classes of antibiotics have been discovered since the 1980s. We have our, our terrifying-looking discovery void on the right-hand side right there. Um, I should point out we're referring to classes of antibiotics, not uh, sort of individual drugs. A class. Uh, by class, we mean a, a group of antibiotics that, that all have a, a shared way of working and impact on on the same uh, same bacteria. Um, there might be, or there are, multiple individual drugs within that class. So, for example, penicillin uh, penicillins are a class of drugs. Multiple different drugs in that class. Um, the reason why we're interested in new classes of antibiotics rather than just new antibiotics uh, when it comes to resistance is that if we we have resistance against for example a penicillin already if we discover a new penicillin uh, it may have some some great uses but actually uh, those existing resistance uh, um, genes existence uh, resistance traits will probably also confer resistance against our new drug as well Uh, so it might be a useful drug in some respects but it might not be so helpful for us when it comes to uh, stopping resistance. And so in terms of what's in the pipeline now, there are currently between uh, 40 and 50 antibiotics in in clinical development in that clinical trial phase. Uh, The preclinical pipeline uh, includes quite a lot of innovative work at the moment, which is really nice. There are over 250 antimicrobial agents in early stage testing in that preclinical block. Um, But the downside of that is it will take up to 10 years for the first of those drugs to make it to market. And of course, many of those promising candidates will Fall off along the way, um, and some interesting uh, statistics here for antibiotics in existing classes. On average, only one for every 50 drugs in preclinical development will reach patients, will get to market. And for new classes of antibiotics, the statistics are, are even worse. Only one for every 30 candidates um, will actually make it to the end of the pipeline. And so the question then is, we've painted quite a bleak picture of the way things are looking. How can we make antibiotic research and development more sustainable? How can we make that market more friendly to help us push antibiotics through? And as I've been alluding to, uh, innovation in the antibiotic area is slowly increasing again. We're seeing more innovation, particularly in in the basic science and preclinical development. Uh, And this is because uh, some funding specifically aimed at those early stages of research has, has really taken off. And so from the diagram here, you can see we've got our pipeline in the middle again, and, and that funding is represented by the push incentives arrow on the left. So this is what we call push funding, push incentives. Um, It's mainly represented by, um, by grant funding, funding uh, by, by injecting, injecting money, money into, into research, research that we're not expecting to pay back. back. Uh, so and that so that gets, that gets awarded to, to academic institutions, institutions also companies, to companies, and it really, and it really helps, helps them, get them get through those, those first stages of high pipeline. And, and for example, welcome, well, welcome along, along with uh, many, many other, other um, philanthropic, philanthropic organisations, governments, governments are reaching really, funding, funding in that space. space. And, and uh, the problem we have, we have with that is, is uh, it's, great, it's great, but it's not, but it's very not sustainable. sustainable. We, we can't keep funding things just by throwing a lot of money at it forever. And the other problem is uh, we're sort of pushing um, pushing candidates through these first few chunks of the pipeline, but then they get to the, the sort of clinical trial stage, especially. The, there's no funding, there's little support for that stage, and they're really just dropping off a cliff. So there's lots of discussion at the moment about funding or incentive models at the other end of the pipeline, uh, where we've got that pull incentive um, piece of the diagram that will sort of help pull um, those candidates through the other end. And, and so these ideas usually form around uh, sort of new partnership models that share risk and resources and expertise uh, between philanthropic organizations between industry groups and also between governments and public sector and so there's a few different um ideas that i wanted just to, to raise in this talk so, so the first one there is on the slide the market entry rewards idea and this is for example giving lump sum payments um, to successful developers uh, who, whose antibiotic successfully reaches the market at the end so that's sort of quite a simple one um but there's sort of more intricate ideas that are coming up so uh, there's one particular thing that's being piloted by the UK government at the moment, which is a subscription style payment model. Or that we like to call the Netflix model, um, where uh, the government in this case pays pharmaceutical companies uh, up front. They pay them a subscription for access to drugs. Uh, and the cost of that subscription is based on uh, the value that the government puts on, on those medicines to the health service. Uh, you then pay your subscription, but you only sort of take drugs uh, when you really need them. And in that way, we can keep new drugs uh, reserved to keep them safe and not used. And these these solutions require significant investment from the governments uh, from governments around the world. And, and so far, that's something where commitment has been quite low, and something that we're really pressing on at the moment. Um, but it's it's good that there's lots of discussion about this, uh, including at high level forums like the G20. Though uh, sadly, I think there was a major planned discussion on this topic over the last few weeks at, at the G20, which was somewhat derailed. Um, but hopefully those discussions will keep going and we'll see some really great movement on this issue in not too distant future, because the suggestions are there. It's just about getting people on board and getting them to happen. And so that was just a bit about how we make new drugs. Um, uh, but we'll move on to the kind of the next area of, of solutions, which is how do we keep antibiotics working for longer? So. Uh, example think that we have a new drug on the market uh, as we know we can't stop resistance uh, and so we want to make the most of this incredible investment that we've just made in this new medicine and keep it working for as long as we possibly can and this graph uh, shows how uh, as antibiotic use increases so that's on our x-axis uh, so does the percentage of cases of resistance that's on the y-axis so in this case the x-axis is use of penicillin and the y-axis is uh, percentage cases of um, pneumonia that are resistant. Uh, So as you can see, uh, countries who have high use of of penicillin also have have high cases of resistance. And so really what we know is that the key is using antibiotics as little as possible, uh, exactly as we talked about earlier with the exposure idea and the fact that exposure of bugs to drugs is the thing that accelerates uh, and promotes the emergence of resistance. And so this sounds simple, just just don't use the drugs. Sadly, it's not always that simple, and sometimes these things are much harder to achieve than than we might think. And so let's start with thinking about what the ideal situation looks like. So in an ideal world, uh, we might have a system that looks like this, and this would fit what we often refer to as antibiotic stewardship, um, just being good stewards of medicines. And ideally, our patient will come in for for proper clinical evaluation. Um, So I see our patient starting at the top there, They'll feel ill they'll come straight to a doctor a qualified clinician will then uh, use a diagnostic test of the best possible kind uh, and send this to a microbiology lab to isolate the microbe causing the infection and, and, and really tie down exactly what it is um, interestingly note the word rapid, rapid diagnostic test here um, which can be a bit of a pipe dream usually uh, bacterial tests take 36 hours or more to return so it's something that a lot of people are looking into making that diagnostic process far more efficient and then once we've had our diagnostic performed our result will be fed back to the clinician who will then provide uh, the right prescription to the patient at the right time and we should have a successful treatment Um, and and it goes without saying as well i should say that we would also expect a similar process of providing antibiotics in animals where provision is only done uh, when, when there's an illness and on advice from a vet. But in reality, uh, things are actually a lot trickier. Um, while we might be able to get close, somewhere close to our diagram, uh, perhaps for inpatients in hospitals, though there are, there are other issues in hospitals that we come to face, uh, there are certainly even bigger barriers uh, when we kind of step out into the community and, and the landscape out in the real world. Uh, especially outside of hospitals, is a whole lot messier. And so really, on this, I wanted to touch on some some research that Wellcome conducted in 2018, looking at triggers of antibiotic use uh, behaviours in in people in India and Kenya. Uh, And this this picture and some of the the following images are pulled from that research. Um, But just to be clear from the top, this really only provides a snapshot of the different circumstances that get in the way of our ideal model of antibiotic use. Um, And also worth pointing out that that every country is different. Uh, While you think many of these issues might be specific to to low or middle income countries, it's not always the case. And so thinking about some of those uh, particular issues uh, in the community that might stop us from achieving our perfect stewardship model. So uh, starting on the left, uh, often patients might self-medicate people using old medicines that, that they have left over from when they were ill previously or being given things by friends. In many places, antibiotics uh, are available over the counter. Uh, Even in places where this is technically a legal practice, it can still happen, especially if it's not enforced very well by uh, sort of national governments, state level governments, uh, whoever's in control of that practice. And then in many places, uh, we also have um, sort of healthcare workers in the community, uh, yeah, community level uh, healthcare providers. Community nurses who don't always have uh, the training, the authority to actually prescribe antibiotics. Um, uh, but many will anyway, uh, just because they need to help patients on the spot. Maybe they, they can't access more formal health care that might be far away or, or expensive. Um, similar to those uh, in some countries, you also might get unofficial crack doctors who open their own businesses uh, sort of. Branding themselves as fully fledged doctors without actually having qualifications, and they will prescribe things. And goes without saying as well that even fully trained doctors don't always follow the best practice. Um, They might feel under pressure by the patient, uh, or know that the patient is vulnerable. uh, The patient might be very poor or has travelled a long way. They know that they might not have the time or the money uh, to come back and see the doctor again. Um, So they prescribe them something on the spot just in case. Um, and of course, when it comes to doctors, other studies have shown some some other really interesting behaviours, uh, like prescribing more just before lunchtime or lasting on a Friday, because doctors are people too, and and they're subject to, to these sort of normal um, human pressures. And so, what we end up with is something that looks a bit like this. Uh, this is a patient pathway map that we drew after doing some of this uh, this research in these communities in India and Kenya, and looking at, at the behaviours that patients follow. Um, This represents all the kinds of routes that we saw people taking as a response to illness. On the left-hand side our person realises that they're sick. Um, The first thing that they think about is do they think they know what they do? If they recognise the illness um, perhaps from something they've had before they might just go ahead and and buy the right medications or use things they've already got. If they're not sure uh, they might ask at the pharmacy uh, they might ask a friend. Uh, they might seek an alternative uh, primary care provider, qualified, uh, able to prescribe, not able to prescribe, completely unqualified uh, and seek their information that way. And probably the last thing they would do uh, is see a trained, a trained doctor. That's that's really the pathway that takes the most effort uh, on anyone's part. And so. We were asking ourselves when we did this research, why do people act this way? And really, a lot of how to understand this sits firmly in behavioural science. Um, Patients are driven by feeling ill and frustrated. They want their illness to be validated. They want some quick relief. Um, But they also might need to get back to work or to family life as quickly as possible. They just need to get rid of the illness. Um, They also may have limited money or limited time to see a professional and so, in all those cases, people will always follow the route of least friction to, to find their solution. Um, similarly, most health professionals are under different kinds of pressure uh, time pressure, pressure from patients, financial pressure. Um, when it comes to finances, antibiotics are, are very cheap, sadly, uh, just a few pence usually. And so, the immediate costs of prescribing an antibiotic seem very small especially when comparatively conducting a diagnostic test is, is usually very expensive. You have to pay for the kit. You have to pay for the lab time. And, and also it can take quite a bit of time to, to give you a result. So just prescribing comes out uh, much cheaper, much easier um, than the proper process. And in some settings, of course, there are further complicating factors uh, for doctors and pharmacists if they're incentivized to sell drugs, um, including antibiotics, through, through bonus schemes from pharmaceutical companies. And so with all of those complicating factors, with all of those, those messy um, uh, sort of drivers and, and incentives going on, um, how, do we, how do we fix all of that? And, and the terminology that we tend to use now is that we're really looking for, for people to move towards rational use of antibiotics rather than inappropriate or unnecessary use. And really what this is, is um, pointing to is the fact that these decisions are sometimes difficult. Um, and so we just try and do the best that we can. In the end, uh, we might use an antibiotic when it's not actually needed, uh, but we want to make sure that when we make those decisions that we weigh things up to make sure that we're not depriving people of healthcare when they need it. Um, and with acute infections, it's always better to err on the side of caution. So this is where some of these ethical questions come into play, about you know whether whether it's it's right to give medicine now uh, and think about AMR or whether it's worth taking the risk with the patients. And so, what are the potential approaches that that can help us be as rational as possible or to eliminate the irrational behavior and so at a very basic level it's about creating helpful guides and frameworks to moderate antibiotic use and trying to encourage people both healthcare providers and patients to follow those those guidelines and just a few examples here so on the left we have an example of a prescription decision tree for prescribers this is from from the UK the UK National Institute for Healthcare Excellence um, This is uh, for presentation of a cough, and you you look at the kind of symptoms you're presenting and it gives you a guide of whether you should be prescribing an antibiotic or not. Uh, But it's also interesting that this also gives options to provide um, self-care advice, so that even if patients aren't getting a prescription, um, you're giving them something, uh, you're you're validating their illness, you're giving them some information and helping them uh, feel better. It also gives the option of providing a backup prescription, uh, which means providing a prescription be cashed in a few days later if the patient still isn't feeling any better and some of those measures try to sort of address some of the underlying reasons why we might prescribe when, when we really shouldn't be and then for patients uh, we have many information campaigns uh, so an example is the one on the right if you live in the uk maybe you'll be familiar with the singing antibiotics which hit our television screens uh, every winter time Um, And you'll see here that this particular campaign is trying to provide people with quite a bit of information. Uh, It's also talking about risk, uh, but it's really pointing people towards seeking professional advice. Uh, But for me, I think some of the most interesting work going on to to support um, rational use of antibiotics is is really around behavioural science. Um, Now, the difficulty with behavioural science is that it works best when you tailor the interventions quite specifically to the group you're working with so it can be very hard to scale across countries or into slightly different groups of stakeholders um, but some studies have seen some really interesting results and so uh, the example here the, the graph i'm showing is from a study in the uk trying to get gps to reduce prescriptions of antibiotics um, this study was conducted by the behavioral insights team uh, public health england and england's chief medical officer and they ran a randomized trial to test whether GPs uh, reduce their prescribing when they're informed that they're prescribing antibiotics at a relatively higher rate compared to their peers, so this is sort of social norm feedback. Uh, the intervention here was simple and cheap. Um, Eight hundred practices were sent a letter from the Chief Medical Officer of the UK, stating uh, that the great majority of practices in their in their local area, so eighty percent of practices in their local area, were actually prescribing fewer antibiotics per head than their practice. So. They were the outliers. Um, the letter also contained three simple actions to help ensure that prescriptions were appropriate in future. So it gives them some, idea, uh, some ideas of what they can do to change this. And over six months, those who received the letter reduced their antibiotic prescribing rates by 3.3% compared to those who didn't. So this is what this graph is showing uh, that you still can see our sort of winter spike. Um, so this percentage doesn't sound like a lot. Um, but actually it led to, uh, here's the numbers, 73,406 fewer antibiotic prescriptions at a cost of six pence per prescription saved, uh, which led to direct prescriptions, uh, prescription cost savings of 92,356 pounds. So perhaps every little helps uh, when it comes to antibiotic stewardship. And so finally, uh, to, to wrap things up, we've talked a bit about what the problems are, Um, We've talked about some of the ideas for how to fix those problems, um, but uh, how do we actually create create that change in the real world? And this is something that working in science policy, uh, I spend most of my time thinking about. And really the nature of AMR makes this quite a hard proposition. Um, Antibiotic resistance is is a multi-sectoral problem. It involves population health, uh, it involves animal welfare. Um, it involves environmental, ecological, sociological, and economic dimensions. Um, further to this, bugs just don't respect borders. Uh, it's a global challenge where no one country can solve things alone without others. So, uh, quite a difficult one to come at from a policy perspective. And so, to really manage this effectively, we need policies that address antibiotic resistance uh, and effectively coordinate a national and international response. And sometimes it can feel a bit like we have to move a mountain to be successful. And so I really just wanted to flag some things that are happening to encourage that kind of change. Uh, So to point out that there is a global action plan on AMR, which was published in 2016 by uh, the World Health Organization. This highlights five key areas where global change on AMR is needed uh, and suggests some starting points for how individual countries uh, might focus their work on AMR. This plan has acted as a blueprint for countries to develop their own national action plans. Uh, These plans are are expected to span across all the different sectors affected by AMR. We talked about the One Health areas earlier, uh, so not just human health. And these plans should also set targets uh, that the countries will aim to reach within a five year time period. And after this five years, the idea is that you go back, you revisit, uh, revise your plan, and you try and up your ambition. And if anyone's interested, the UK national action plan Revised in 2019 uh, and it's available on the government website. Um, People joining in other countries uh, could be worth having a look at at your country's national action plan as well. And while these pieces have helped make some progress, uh, there are still some questions on on accountability and how we really help these kinds of of collective or individual changes to really feed into sustainable change at a higher level. And so, uh, there's been some interesting work on this going on within the UN system. A high-level meeting uh, was dedicated to AMR at the UN General Assembly in 2016. Uh, Since then, we've seen lots of discussion about pulling together some kind of AMR global governance body to oversee progress uh, on the issue on on this sort of higher level. Um, And importantly, this work has not just centered on on human health and, and getting input from the World Health Organization, but also other major UN organizations like the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Organization for Animal Health, uh, the UN Environment Programme and, and others, uh, so that we can really coordinate and come together on this sort of widespread change that's needed. And we're starting to see this global governance body uh, take shape. Um, discussions over the last year or so have really centred on what, this, what the structure of this governance body might look like, how it might work. And actually, early this year at the moment, um, I, I know there are discussions going on about um, how we might set up some of the components of Body and how we really get it going. So there's discussions as to how we set up a global leader group that sort of guides the body and also discussions on uh, how we set up a scientific input function so we make sure that the work of the body is always grounded in evidence. And finally, um, just a, a few thoughts on, on what, what individual people can do on this topic as well. It's not just about um, the WHO, about the UN, about uh, governments, Uh, it also comes down to individual people. And uh, we've touched on some of these things before, but really um, individuals can mostly work across three different areas. So so firstly, using antibiotics wisely, We've obviously talked about um, the importance of of getting information from from healthcare professionals rather than Um, self-medicating. Individuals can also uh, sort of play a part in keeping themselves healthy. We now all really know the importance of washing our hands and how we do it properly and not spreading infections between people. And then finally, raise awareness. Um, Maybe some people knew quite a bit about AMR before this talk, but if you've learned something new, maybe you'd like to to share the word with with other people that you know. And so one very final thought, sorry, I think I'm a few minutes over time, but given the current circumstance, um, that means I'm presenting remotely to you today, I thought it might be interesting just to share a few reflections on on the interface between COVID-19 and AMR. There's definitely some interface and and I think the the sort of impact can work both ways. Um, So first, in terms of how AMR might affect COVID-19 patients, uh, we know that many deaths are caused by secondary infections, not the COVID infection itself. Uh, Many of these are are bacterial, like bacterial pneumonia, and are treated with antibiotics. Uh, And if that infection turns out to be resistant, the treatment of the patient is is obviously severely jeopardised further. We don't yet know much about incidence of resistant infections, um, but some data is emerging on the proportion of patients who are developing secondary infections, uh, at least in the first place. So just from some of those studies, uh, I I picked up a few um a few stats. So there was a cohort in China they looked at where 27% of COVID patients had a secondary bacterial infection. There's also a study looking at a cohort in France where uh, one in five patients either had a secondary bacterial or a secondary fungal infection which, which is important as we're also seeing increasing issues with, with resistant fungal infections and then also it comes to healthcare associated infections those secondary infections have real opportunity to spread especially if our healthcare facilities are overcrowded and our, our healthcare professionals are under pressure um, healthcare associated infections are already a big issue um, people do a lot of work to, to contain infections in hospital environments So in situations like this, where, as I was saying, we're under a lot of different pressures, there's real scope for this problem to be exacerbated. And so, again, if resistant infections get the opportunity to spread, this could really impact um, the the sort of treatment length and and patient outcomes of people suffering with COVID. And then lastly, how might COVID-19 affect AMR going forward? Um, I think we already have some figures to suggest that antibiotic use has increased. with the COVID issue going on at the moment. Inside hospitals, antibiotics are are being used uh, more both to treat secondary infections, but also as a precaution. Uh, There might be questions on on how well some of the the diagnostic testing could be working within hospitals, uh, given the the pressure on laboratories to do COVID testing rather than um, than, uh, bacterial infection testing. And so uh, turning to to precautionary measures uh, might be larger than normal. And some early studies have shown that anywhere from 45% to 100% of COVID patients uh, in, in the cohorts these studies were looking at were given antibiotics as part of their, their, their COVID treatment. And uh, equally in the community, some people might be self-medicating uh, more so than before with antibiotics if they get sick. And I've sort of anecdotally heard of a few cases where doctors are prescribing antibiotics to suspected COVID patients, uh, really because... People aren't able to visit their doctor in the same way. Uh, They also can't access testing in the same way. Uh, They they can't access testing to to know if they've got COVID. And so they just end up being sick for a very long time. And many doctors will just provide medicine as a cheap just-in-case measure just to see if that helps people get better. And uh, as a a fun fact, you might also be familiar with President Trump's uh, keenness on uh, hydroxychloroquine teamed with azithromycin, Now, azithromycin is actually an antibiotic, so we don't like that advice. Please don't take antibiotics, (laughs) unnecessarily. Um, But we should say that actually now this has been shown not to be a good therapy. Uh, But despite this, the US uh, FDA have said that there is actually a shortage of azithromycin at the moment uh, because people seem to be buying it more. And similar to the point above in terms of greater spread of infections, uh, if we're seeing a greater spread of bacterial infections, whether they're resistant or not, in overcrowded healthcare facilities, then then this increases our chances of exposure of bugs to drugs, uh, and increases our risk of AMR emerging and readily spreading. But um, as I say, I know there's a lot of people who are interested in in this this interface between COVID and AMR, and I'm sure we'll be studying this going forward. So that was really everything I wanted to say. I think it's eight o'clock, and I can hear a lot of clapping going on outside my window, um, which is which is quite apt. Uh, given the topic of the talk today and what i was just talking about um, so thank you so much for for listening uh and we're really interested to, to take your questions especially interested if if you think that the, the current situation current pandemic uh, might have sort of influenced um your your perspectives on on the talk today so thank you very much mm-hmm.
2: Thank you, everybody, to Skeptics in the Pub Online with Sean Williams. We are talking about the problem of antibiotic resistance. And hopefully you've all submitted your questions on Slido and voted for the ones you like. You might be able to influence which ones come up because we might not get through all of them. But in the meantime, welcome to the part of the evening where I try to pronounce all of your Slido usernames. So the first question uh, tonight comes from DG Dunning, and he would like to know, Sean. If we stop using an antibiotic, will it gradually become more effective again?
0: So uh,
1: it's a really interesting question and uh, and I'm probably not going to be uh, nice and give you the, the yes or no answer that you're looking for. I think um, an important thing to, to note with this is that it's it's probably more about uh, the response of the bacteria. So um, it talked before about uh, fitness of bacteria and actually uh, when they they have a resistance gene, they will actually only only keep those genes if they're useful to them. Um, so if they're being put under pressure, they'll keep the genes that that help them um, sort of stay alive and and be successful under those pressures. But actually, uh, bacteria don't really like carting around extra genetic information with them. If those genes aren't aren't being useful, if it's sort of a uh, extra genetic information that, that they've got there, they might well just get rid of it. Um, and so in those cases you can see bacteria lose uh, the ability to be resistant against different bacteria against different antibiotics um and obviously that only happens if if they're not seeing the antibiotic uh but probably on the whole the answer might be will probably be no uh, only because as i said as well um uh bacteria have have um been sort of using resistance as a tool for for, for longer than humans have been around um, we have plenty of antimicrobials, uh, antibiotics that exist in nature, um, and that, that they've been sort of picking up resistance and losing resistance to over the years. Um, and so, uh, if we completely wiped out the use of an antibiotic, then then maybe we we might see a drop in in uh, that particular trait being in, in bacterial populations, just because there's no reason for the bacteria to, to keep that trait. Um, but at the same time it's something that that could just be moving around in populations it's something that might be really hard to get rid of um, and i suppose at the same time as well you'd have to really make sure that that all um all antibiotics within that whole class of antibiotics were probably not being used um so it's maybe not quite a black and white question uh, you might see a lot of a lot of changes in terms of what what uh, the bacteria were were showing but it's very unlikely that um you would, you know, be able to get that antibiotic uh, sort of working as as well, uh, sort of not seeing any resistance to it at all. Um, if, if that makes sense,
2: <laughs> I think it does, and I I hope D J I hope D J Dunning agrees <laughs> that it's answered the question. Um, the next question comes from Rowan. Rowan says that former Soviet nations like Georgia have focused on developing bacteriophages to treat antibiotic-resistant infections. And wants to know if there's anything promising in that.
1: Yes so um, there are a, a sort of class of what we call alternatives um, which which people are increasingly looking at when it comes to sort of developing treatments um, and bacteriophages is, is one of those. Um, I must confess uh, the antibiotic development side is is not my, my main forte, most of my work is as I said in the environment side and also in, in more of the stewardship and behaviour um, but but certainly there are these alternatives coming to the fore. Uh, I think possibly it's a bit tricky to say how how sort of how soon they might be coming up, how promising those things might be. Uh, it, it's probably relatively a bit more of, unknown, of an unknown compared to the, the sort of more standard pipeline that, that we see for antibiotic development. Um, but those things are being looked at. And, and there are sort of other classes as well outside of, of bacteriophage, other other different kinds of Um, of compounds and molecules that people are looking at to to try and and treat um, uh, bacteria-resistant infections, multi-resistant infections. Um, And sort of other interesting areas that that people are increasingly looking at when it comes to AMR. So another one that springs to mind is vaccines. Um, And so it can be very hard to create a vaccine um, uh, for for many of the, the really serious bacterial infections that we see. Um, I'm not sure people might be familiar with uh, gram-negative bacteria, but in particular, when it comes to resistance, we're very concerned about the impact of gram-negative bacteria. And so there's a lot of uh, people thinking about how you can make vaccines for, for those bacteria so that um, it's less of an issue uh, of resistance if people are already able to be immune and not infected. Uh, so there are these different different types of things that are being researched and looked at. But, um, it's probably a, a bit difficult to to say. It sort of doesn't fit our nice known um, uh, pipeline of antibiotic development, so it's kind of unclear how and when it might um, be able to be used.
2: I just very quickly on that because somebody's asked in the Twitch chat. Uh, can you explain to people unfamiliar with the term what we mean by a bacteriophage?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. I'm having now to cast my mind back to my my undergrad science class, um, and I'm probably going to not do this justice. There's probably some students out there that can do a much better job than me now um bacteriophage is, is essentially um, a virus of a bacteria uh, and so um what they what they do is they they sort of have these these little protein heads and have little almost legs sticking out so google a picture of them they're, they're quite fun to look at um and uh they as i say essentially a virus of bacteria um they can operate by uh, sort of inserting genetic information into bacterial cells and so you can use them as a vessel to sort of um, to, to, to insert things into, into bacteria that, that might kill the bacteria and then therefore act as, as a potential treatment against a bacterial infection.
2: Thank you very much. Um, the next question comes from Alpha Lyrae and they ask, how important is regulating animal farming industry for mitigating antibiotics resistance?
1: yes so again a, a really good question and a uh, a uh, mention in the talk about the importance of one health and making sure that um we don't just focus on on the human side of things but actually if we do that we're only solving half of the picture when it comes to amr um and so yeah it's, it's definitely a very difficult question and I, I think the main thing when it comes to the animal industry at the moment is uh, we just don't have the data that we need to really understand uh, really what's happening out there. Um, obviously in some places, uh, the industry is really well regulated. We know a lot about, uh, what's happening, what's going on. And so places come to mind like the EU, um, has a lot of regulatory processes. Uh, they're very strict on what can and cannot be used when it comes to antibiotics in, in livestock rearing, um, in other places. It's a bit more hit and miss. And in some places we, we know nothing at all when it comes to what um, what some farmers are using. Um, so in that respect, I think probably the first thing that we really need is is data. We just need more information and exactly as you say it kind of comes down to, to regulation. And at the moment, most of that is is controlled at a country level. Uh, and that's certainly something which which many countries are trying to do and, and features quite strongly within the, the blueprint of the national action plans that, that we're trying to get countries to put together and implement. Um, so in the human side and the animal side, often the first thing that, that we're looking for is just better data on, on burden of, of resistant infections, on where antibiotics are being used, just so we can build up a better picture of what's going on. And once you have that, you can start working out um, where your problems are, um, and you can work out how how you should be uh, sort of enforcing those, what standards you need, how to enforce them, how to how to change things. Um, uh, yeah, so the animal sector, I think as well, it, it's probably quite a big issue in especially low middle income countries where we do have those those really big data gaps.
2: Well, I think that brings us nicely on to Foigel's question, which is simply would removing animals from from the human food chain reduce the number of new bacteria humans come in contact with?
1: This is a good question, and uh, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe I don't feel fully qualified to to answer that. I probably don't know uh, enough. I'm not technically a microbiologist, uh, so I take my microbiology answers with a pinch of salt uh, to know enough about whether. Um, how how far uh, sort of um, humans and animals might might share bacteria things might be able to jump or, or cause the other one problems we talked a bit about zoonoses and obviously with the, the current pandemic we we appreciate a bit more than we did before about um, viruses that can jump from humans to animals um, there's definitely a, a contamination point when it comes to food um, that is a, a vector through which uh, antibiotics and resistant bacteria can transfer from from um, animals to humans. Um Really, in in the supply chain, uh, there should be measures in place to to try and sort of minimise that as much as possible. So, certainly in places, come back to the EU again. I also happen to work quite a bit on on AMR in the EU, um they they certainly have more regulatory processes. Um in terms of uh, standards when it comes to things like uh, animal husbandry, how animals are kept, uh, antibiotics that, that are given to animals. There'll also be standards when it comes to um, uh, things like slaughtering, um, sort of meat processing, packaging, making sure things are, are clean. Um, and so really, it's, it's a bit more of a supply chain question as well than just what what you're giving to your, your animal uh, when it's alive in terms of um, antibiotics. Um, sorry, looking back to the question. So, yeah, it's definitely a contamination point, but I suppose I I couldn't say whether it will reduce the number of new bacteria that, that humans come into into contact with, and perhaps it depends what those bacteria are and, and whether they they represent more or less of a threat. Yeah,
2: thank you very much. Um, the next question is submitted anonymously, and it is. Do products that claim to kill ninety-nine point nine percent of bacteria increase the prominence of resistance bacteria?
1: So this is a really good question, and it may depend a bit on exactly what um, what those products are made of. And I'm, I'm being a bit cheeky. I'm also looking at the slider, and I can, I can see the question underneath as well. That's sort of talking about what's the difference between an antibiotic and an antiseptic, and um, and so to kind of combine those two together, maybe an antiseptic is is a sort of a broader term for um uh something that uh that that kills microorganisms um so probably an antibiotic it could technically be seen as as a type of antiseptic and so so is when you see those adverts that say kills 99.9% of bacteria um it, it sort of depends what that's made of and you know it, it's some form of antiseptic but uh, it's maybe not clear from that statement actually how it's it's functioning in that way um, and so if we come back to think about the pressures, uh, the selective pressures that those are putting on, uh, if it's putting a selective pressure onto bacteria that's sort of supporting those that, that have those genetic mutations that, um, that mean that they're not affected by uh, antibiotics or by a particular antibiotic, then yes, it might be a problem. Um, but again, it kind of depends what they, what that point was It point one point zero one percent is the nine point nine point one percent is why that's staying alive? What's the advantage that it has that means it's not being killed by by that particular um, antiseptic, that, that particular solution? Um, so it, yes, it may be that those things in in sort of cross over, but it, it could depend what it is that's keeping that bacteria alive and whether um, that also means that it, it won't respond to antibiotics. Well,
2: thank you very much. Um... The next question, a uh, late entry into the top chart on Slido, so do do keep voting, apparently there's everything to play for, it comes from Matt Evans from Bristol Skeptics, who heard on Radio 4 that artificial intelligence and machine learning are being used to find new antibiotics, and wonders if you have any insight into that.
1: Yeah, so uh, as I was talking about um this is, we'll use this at the very early stages of discovery research to, to, to start finding some of those um, uh, potentially uh, good looking uh, antibiotic compounds. Um, and it's interesting that those seem to really come from all over the place. Um, uh, when we look at things like in, in nature, you can see some of them cropping up in lots of different places that we might not expect. And so, uh, yes, exactly right. And there are people that are, are using these different techniques to, to try and find some of those um, potential candidates um, from a very broad list. Um, I remember seeing the, the the sort of BBC news article on this at the time, and I think uh, probably in our team we're a little bit sceptical at the way they present it. And I think sometimes the news has a habit of doing this. It, it sort of shines a light on this. Oh, we found this really interesting candidate uh, for an antibiotic, and it could be the the next thing we need. I suppose we t- we tend to take it with a pinch of salt because uh, it's obviously it's a perfectly valid and really interesting way to find those candidates. But I, I think we're focused on the the sort of ten to fifteen year time frame by which that then would end up becoming a drug. And so I think our responses usually come back to us in you know five years when it, it might be in clinical trials, uh, and maybe ten years when it reach the market so it's definitely really important that, that we're finding as many potential candidates as we can through all of these these different um techniques um, but the, maybe the, the skeptic in me says <laughs> we should maybe uh, focus more on, on medicines when they're a little bit further down the chain and
0: they feel a little bit more reliable
2: well on that topic dev drummer asks are there any promising new antibiotics or different technologies to combat multi-drug resistant infections
1: This is a great question. And I'm probably going to have to say that uh, sort of not my strongest area and um, can't think of any on the top of my head more than than what we've really talked about. There are these these alternative approaches that that people are taking, looking at things like bacteriophage, uh, vaccines. Um, We do have some some promising antibiotics in the pipeline. I believe there are some some new classes in the pipeline as well. and, And that's probably really the most exciting thing. Um, that we're starting to, to see these candidates for, for new classes of antibiotics that are coming into the pipeline and starting to progress a bit. Um, which is really the, the thing that, that we need. Um, as I was saying in the talk, um, uh, the, the class is the important thing, because uh, if, if you find an antibiotic in, in an existing class, it, it could be helpful for some infections. But actually, um, it's very likely that if resistance is an issue in that class already, then it will still be an issue in this new drug. And so the key is really some of those new classes coming out, which, which really could be really important when it comes to treat, um, treating resistant or multi drug resistant infections.
2: OK, well, we're going to go slightly back to a topic adjacent to the previous question um, and ask if the increased availability of products labelled as antibacterial has an effect on antibiotic resistance developing.
1: This is a great question. And so, again, it kind of comes back to that idea of it sort of depends how what mechanism that that particular product um, is is killing bacteria through. Um, and if it's shared with antibiotics and and um, and bacteria can then uh, have more exposure uh, to that pressure, the same pressure that, that they get from antibiotics, then it, it's a concern because that means then uh, you get a rise in in the kind of resistance that we care about when it comes to drug resistance. Um, If it's sort of another mechanism, then then maybe it might not be so concerning uh, unless there's some sort of uh, genetic linkage between that that trait, the resistance um, to that particular um, uh, um, antibacterial compound and and a drug, an antibiotic drug that, that we're interested in. Um, so it's a bit unclear and, and sort of maybe sometimes we, we kind of think that these might be buzzwords um, that, that sort of get people more interested in, in buying products if that's really what they're looking for. But I think, as I mentioned, in the talk as well, a lot of things can be antibacterial um, bleach is antibacterial. A lot of things kill bacteria. Um, but, but not all of those things are antibiotics. So it's sort of where we have that interface that, that we're really interested
2: Okay, Um. Rowan asks our next question and wants to know, is it a problem how much we rely on the private sector for drugs which are only taken short term and are therefore relatively unprofitable?
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose the way the market has developed, um, us being heavily reliant on the private sector to develop medicines has uh, really put us in a situation that we're in now um, where actually we're finding that What's been created is is just a market failure, really. Something where we're relying on a market to to create us new um, medicines, but but actually now it's turning out to be not not an attractive market to be in. And so we get to this point where um, all of the research had been in pharmaceutical companies, um, in the private sector, uh, and now those players are leaving the space, and that leaves us with a big gap. And so this is where we end up with uh, a lot of the the um, Public funding the philanthropic funding from people like Welcome trying to kind of jump in and fill this gap where things had been moving a bit smoother previously um and so uh yes then in that sense um we've sort of got ourselves into this this particular market dynamic um through that sort of reliance on on private sector companies being there and, and taking this role um though so, it's really, uh, as I was saying, those are really the companies that, that have the expertise, that, that really have the knowledge and the infrastructure to to complete many of the stages uh, in the antibiotic pipeline, especially things like clinical trials. So um, at the moment, the, the welcome specter certainly is that we can't do things without them. It, it's not a matter of, of cutting that out completely. And sort of our, our approach to this has very much been um, to sort of work with all the different stakeholders involved and, and try to find solutions that work for everybody. And yes, that does mean that, um, you know, the private sector can't necessarily have everything that they might want um, in terms of making this a, a really profitable sector. Um, and also the public sector may have to make some sacrifices in terms of sort of allowing that profitability factor to to be in the mix so people stay in the, in the business. Um, but very much we're focusing on solutions that, bring everyone together and make it sort of a, a cross-sector um, approach.
2: Okay, I was I was about to introduce this next question, straightforward, but what do I know? What I mean is it's short. Phil would like to know, why don't antibiotics work against viruses?
1: Yes, great question. So, um, yes, how, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this to make it as, as simple as possible. Um so as we were talking about, uh, antibiotics have very specific ways of functioning, which uh, are specific to targeting bacteria. So um, I nearly put this in the presentation actually, but I didn't have time to put it in. So great question, I'm now trying to remember what some of those mechanisms are. So for example, some antibiotics um, uh, target bacteria by, uh, by lysing their cell walls. So by breaking down the cell wall, causing the bacteria to, to, to break and, and die. Um, some antibiotics work by um, binding protein synthesis um, proteins within bacteria, so they they can get into the bacterial cell and sort of stop the the protein synthesis mechanisms, uh, sort of not allowing them to to grow anymore. So they they sort of get stuck. Um, and then some antibiotics function by preventing bacteria from from reproducing. So they might get um, uh, sort of stuck into the the um, genetic replication process, which means that the bacteria isn't able to, to um, duplicate its dna it's not able to split and and create offspring so um really then it's the functionality of antibiotics that mean that they can kill bacteria the way the function is specific to targeting bacterial cells and this is also why uh only certain antibiotics work on certain bacteria so not every antibiotic will work on every bacteria and this is again why it's important to do um, diagnostic testing so you can work out which um, antibiotic you really should be using uh, against which infection you actually have. And actually, it's another interesting point that um, we have what we call broad spectrum antibiotics and we have narrow spectrum antibiotics. So there are some antibiotics um, that the way they work means that they can target lots of different bacteria, which means if the doctor really doesn't know what you've got, they might give you a broad spectrum bacteria that could take out a lot of different infections. Um, but if they've, they've done a diagnostic test, they know what, what infection you've got, they might give you a narrow spectrum, which works in a very specific way to target the, the specific infection that you've got. And so actually what we do prefer when it comes to stewardship is that we do try and use the narrow spectrum um, antibiotics where we can, because the broad spectrum, it, it's that exposure idea. Um, you have lots of different bacteria in your body. If you put in a broad spectrum, it's going to target lots of different bacteria in your body, um, some of which are not causing the infection but might have uh, resistance traits. And so it's that exposure, you're increasing the risk of of lots more bacteria to the antibiotic than you would with a narrow spectrum. And so um, I I know very little about viruses, but um, the the difference then with viruses is is you can get uh, antiviral drugs as well, um, and those will then target viruses in a very specific way. And so the opposite doesn't work. So your uh, antibiotic um, uh, mechanism won't work on a virus in the same way that it works on a bacterial cell.
2: And if you haven't got any antibiotics to hand, the next question is why does alcohol interfere with antibiotics um, and can it interfere with antibiotic resistance?
1: That is a really good question. And I'm, I'm probably gonna have to say that I'm not sure. Uh, that's one I'm gonna have to go go away and Google later. <laughs> I wouldn't want to lie to you about the, the microbiological process that, that's going on there. Um, but yeah, obviously that the main thing that I'm thinking now is that we obviously know from from the pandemic that you should be looking for a hand sanitizer that contains alcohol, not, not, um, not just saying it's, it's antibacterial to make sure that it kills viruses. Going back to our, our very important why, why don't um, antibiotics work on viruses question. But yeah, I'm really not sure about alcohol. Actually, that's a great question.
2: Well, the next question is, plant-based diets have been suggested as a way to reduce antibiotic resistance. What weight can we attribute to this and how profound an impact could it have?
1: Again, a really interesting, uh, interesting question um, and a disclaimer. Before I worked on antibiotic resistance, I, I used to work on food security and climate change and sustainable food. So uh, plant-based diets, another topic very close to my heart. Um Something to mention, actually, when it comes to to plants and something that I I didn't mention when I was talking about the environmental aspect of AMR earlier. But we do actually, um, many places do apply antibiotics to crops as well. So it's not something that is exclusive to to humans and animals. Um, it's something that that is found on on plants. Um, And in some cases, there there are antibiotics that we use on plants uh, that, that are the same as the antibiotics that we use uh for people for for human infections which which is where we have the biggest concerns um and so this this is an area of of rising interest and we usually try and make sure that the drugs we're using in animals and on plants are not the ones that we really care about when it comes to to the clinic when it comes to human infections Um, but there is some crossover um, and we are seeing some some worrying cases of antibiotics being sort of sprayed onto fields um, uh and and some cases of, of resistant bacteria showing up as a result um again similar to the animal question we had earlier the issue with the with the plants question is that the the information we have is really just not good enough at the moment and um, we know in some places this just isn't a practice that they use at all but in many places it's something they're doing a lot of and we just don't have the information on on the usage in plants so there's real sort of black boxes when it comes to the data that we have. So it's definitely something that, that we need to do to, to increase uh, what we know about um, antibiotic usage in plants. I'm sorry, I've sort of erred off the question a little bit, um, but uh, it's sort of an interesting factor when it comes to thinking about the impact of, of plants, um, of crops rather than animals, that actually plants are not a, a risk-free zone. Um, we do use antibiotics on those as well as animals.
2: Well, I I'm happy for you to stray off the question a little if it's that <laughs> interesting. Um Alice asks, are there any alternatives to drug based treatments for bacterial infections or will drugs always be the answer?
0: It's a good
1: question. I'm trying to trying to think of, of any alternatives. Um so at the moment antibiotics are, are the best answer. I suppose it depends how you define these alternatives so we've t- we've talked about bacteriophages um which which we now categorize under sort of alternative rather than antibiotic specifically um yeah at the moment that's that's all that we're thinking about to be honest is is use of drugs um I mean the other thing that we we think a lot about uh and maybe is is more important at the moment in some places than use of drugs is it's just improving human infection prevention and control so uh, in some places um uh, we are be using drugs and i was mentioning this in conjunction to animals as well we might be using drugs more as a sticking plaster than we really need to um just because we're covering up for for sort of poorer um, infection practices poorer hygiene practices um in livestock poorer animal husbandry practices And actually what what we could do first before we try and treat an infection is we should try and prevent it. Uh, And and that's a really great way not to have to use antibiotics at all. Uh, We avoid illness and we avoid use of drugs. That means we can reduce the the sort of exposure risk as well. Um, And so when it comes to to humans, obviously, being based in the UK, we're we're really lucky and it's not so much of a concern, but in many countries, this starts with things like um, just improving water sanitation and hygiene practices and and just doing something as, as simple as that or you know, seems as simple as that. Um, things like a better sewage, uh, use of toilets um, can really improve uh, infection rates, uh, Can drive down illness. And if you drive down illness, you also uh, drive down the risk of infection because again, to, to have that exposure between drugs and bugs. You don't just need the drugs, but you also need the bugs. So the less you spread the bugs, the, the less you'll also get that exposure. Um, and same goes with animals. In many places where we're giving drugs to act as a sort of a sticking plaster um, to kind of cover up uh, bad practices. So poor husbandry, we're keeping animals in, in crowded, um, crowded situations. If they're closer together, they're more likely to get sick and, and spread things around. So if we just improve those standards, then, then we can prevent rather than cure, which, which is a really great thing to do.
2: Okay. Um, I think we're going to make this the last question because it's getting quite late and I'm sure we all have places to be. Um, it's an anonymous question and it's how much of the 23 years that it takes to break even, I think referring to developing a new drug, uh, is due to bureaucracy and how much of it is genuinely needed to ensure that drugs are safe and effective?
1: That's a really interesting question. And uh I suppose it's not something I've thought a huge amount about um, just because uh, the the sort of required process for having medicines approved is, is so set in stone and so standardised um, that uh, I, I'm not sure that it, I mean, somebody's probably thought about this, not something that's, that, that I've been working on about whether we can improve that process and, you know, see what you're saying, can we streamline the, the process, maybe make it shorter, make it less expensive? um rather than um sort of pushing through that that big investment and having to wait for 23 years before we can break even on our product
0: um
1: it's a great question uh actually i tell you what i I tell a lie this is something that we're doing some work on at the moment at welcome and one of the things that we are looking at is uh whether we can further streamline clinical trial processes um so at the moment things they can be very unwieldy i mentioned this they can be very expensive. require a lot of infrastructure we're looking at at different um, mechanisms by which we can uh, make things easier make things more streamlined so um, things like if you want to run a clinical trial um and excuse me another pharmaceutical company wants to run a clinical trial standard practice might be that um you both set up your own separate trial you wouldn't speak to each other but if you knew you were both running a trial of, of different medicines at the same time could you for example share the same control group um, and what that would do is uh, reduce the number of people that you need to sign up for your trial, or reduce the the amount of money that you need to spend. So are there simple things like that, or sometimes more complex things that we can do to to sort of ease the process there? And, and that might shorten the length of time it takes, it might make things less expensive. And um, again, that's not my sort of big area of expertise, but, but there are things that we are trying to do to try and make processes like that a bit easier. Um, I think, though, when it comes to to regulation uh, and getting things registered, uh, there might be little we can do in terms of getting things, uh, getting things um, signed up to say, like the US FDA or or the European uh, Medicines Agency. But there are bits further down the chain that we're looking at and trying to improve to make things a bit easier.
2: Okay. well, um, I think that's all of our questions for the evening. So. I hope everyone in the chat will join me in thanking Sean for a very interesting and only occasionally scary talk.
0: That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thulabora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.